This is an AMI podcast. Good morning. It's Friday, August the 26th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go! Coming up on the show today, we wrap up the week with the news panel. Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta will be here. Today, we reflect on the six months of the Russia-Ukraine war. Saskatchewan will be handing out $500 rebates this fall. Ash dividend when resources boom. And Finnish Prime Minister. How we feel about partying politicians. In the second hour of the show, Michael McNeely has a review of 13 Lives, starring Viggo Mortensen and Colin Farrell. And just in time for Back to School, Rachel Bro from the Center for Equitable Library Access will share their featured titles about school and education. Back to school season indeed. But let's start the show with our top story of the day. Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland says the visit to the Arctic by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and NATO Secretary Jens Stoltenberg comes with a purpose. In our budget in April, we meaningfully increased our spending on defense. And Canada is very committed to defending our Arctic and to working closely with our NATO allies. Trudeau and Stoltenberg will be in Cold Lake, Alberta today to continue their tour of defense operations. Let's turn to the economy where economists and realtors are trying to get a handle on how the real estate market is behaving in Canada. Lori Paris has more. One housing analyst and realtor in Toronto says the fall will probably push buyers that have sat on the sidelines waiting for lower prices into the market, adding it doesn't take many more buyers for prices to stabilize or the number of weeks a property stays on the market to shrink. The latest data from the Canadian Real Estate Association shows prices hit nearly $630,000 in July, down 5% from almost $663,000 last July, and they're projected to reach more than $762,000 by the end of the year. However, Desjardins economists recently said they expect prices to drop between 20 and 25% this year. Lori Paris, the Canadian Press. In a somewhat related story, U.S. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell will give a speech today about inflation and interest rates. Analysts are looking for an indication on whether or not interest rates will rise again at the Fed's next meeting south of the border. And while we're south of the border, a judge has ordered the U.S. Justice Department to release a redacted version of the affidavit it used to search the Florida estate of former U.S. President Donald Trump. Reporter Jonathan Carl has what you should expect. The federal agents retrieved more than 20 boxes of government material, 11 sets of documents that were marked classified, some at the highest known level of classification, the markings reserved for the government's most sensitive secrets. But what this affidavit, depending on how much is redacted, could tell us is why the Justice Department felt it was necessary to go in in the way they went in to retrieve those documents so urgently. As for Donald Trump, he has said publicly Publicly, that he is in favor of releasing this affidavit, but his lawyers had absolutely nothing to say about it in court. A deadline of noon today has been set for the release of the redacted document. While we're in the United States, following up on a climate story that we shared yesterday, people in parts of the U.S. Deep South are cleaning up after flash flooding, sent water into churches, homes, and businesses. 20 centimeters of rain fell within a few hours in Mississippi. National Weather Service senior hydrologist Marty Pope says the rain that has already fallen could result in flooding early next week. 
once that water hits the ground, it's going to go into the Alder area river. So essentially, most of that went into what we call the Upper Pearl River Basin, which actually funnels right through Jackson. <laughs> so uh, we're expecting that river to crest at 36 feet on next Tuesday, and that right there would put us in, in, in major flood. Emergency officials say residents in low-lying areas near the river should be prepared for the possibility of an evacuation. And finally, a new study is examining the severity of future heat waves. Ed Donahue takes a closer look at the research. Occasionally in mid-latitude countries, spiking temperatures and humidity in the summer can make it feel like a sweltering 103 degrees. Researchers say by the middle of the century, it could happen 20 to 50 times a year. In the sticky tropics, it could feel much worse. Study author Lucas Zepatello, a Harvard climate scientist, says heat waves are one of the new four horsemen of apocalyptic climate change. Chicago hit the 103-degree heat index level only four times, from 1979 to 1998. The study's most likely scenario shows Chicago hitting that threshold 11 times a year, by the end of the century. I'm Ed Donahue. Let's get to our daily polls. At AMI-audio is where you find us on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. We spent a lot of yesterday's show talking about tipping and tipping culture. So we asked you, do you find that more services and businesses are asking you to tip? 87.5% of you said yes. 12.5% of you said no. We had a lot of responses come in. Don writes in, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. I live on a disability pension, which is barely enough to buy food, so I can't even afford to go out for a cup of coffee or a haircut, so the tip thing is not a problem that I have. Maria writes in on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. Yes, and that is not the worst part. Everyone wants more than 15% tip, not what you can give. There's also another situation which I was told to watch. Some restaurants are adding their own tip before the bill comes. In this instance, if you do not know this, you may be tipping twice. And then, of course, on AMI-audio or at AMI-audio on Twitter, we were joined by Studio Brock, who writes in, I tip, not as nice as some because I make $16 an hour, but I do tip. That said, I'm very anti-tipping. We should be paying people properly instead of asking patrons to make up the difference. Also, prices should include tax. I'm not a fan of falsely deflating prices. Thank you to Brock for his input. It's always got interesting perspectives to share on the poll. At AMI-audio on Twitter, Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Mike Ross sent me a suggestion earlier today. I kind of Frankensteined it a little bit into something different as we're going to be talking about uh, companies that are trying to uh, jump on to the Lisa LaFlam story. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the big business story of the day. But it got us thinking about hair. So we're asking you the question, do you become self-conscious about the impact of aging on your hair? Yes or no? It could be graying. It could be balding. It could be thinning. It could be just the nature and texture of your hair changing. I'll tell you, I'm self-conscious about a lot of things. My hair is definitely definitely on the list. I started to lose my hair somewhere in my mid to late 20s. Now that said, it's very much stabilized. The the retreat that was occurring uh, definitely stabilized. And, you know, there's some new emerging spots on this head of hair of mine, especially during the pandemic when I shaved my head because I couldn't get to a barber. There were some spots on the old head that didn't come back as fast as I would hope. So I'm a little self-conscious about my hair, although I don't really do anything about it. I did change shampoos on the suggestion of my barber. But uh, 
yes, self-conscious, but not being super proactive about it. Grace Scofield, what about you? I mean, you're a young person. You don't have to worry about these things. Um, I would say yes uh, until you hear this. I found my first gray hair when I was 18 years old. Oh, my goodness. And I found it in the mirror one day, and I probably cried for an hour about it. I remember running to my mom and being like, I have a gray hair. And she's like, you're going to be fine. Everything's fine. It's one gray hair. Sometimes you get them younger, but it'll be okay. Since then, I haven't found any gray hairs. Knock on wood. Okay, so it was a rogue. So, it was a yes, rogue gray. A rogue gray hair. Um, I'm not really concerned about the color of it, honestly. That part doesn't bother me, even though I reacted that way to my first gray hair. I've made peace with it. It's <laughs> mostly the changing texture of it. I find that as I've gotten older, my hair's become less soft. It requires a lot more maintenance to keep it the same texture that it used to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that that's probably. Not my biggest insecurity with my hair, but my biggest priority with my hair. And that's a dangerous game because the more product you put in your hair, the more product you end up having to put in your hair. Exactly. Or, you know, you get a different haircut. I cut my hair shorter at the beginning of the summer. I have to straighten it now to keep it looking less frizzy and frazzled. Right, And so now I'm using more heat on my hair, which isn't good for my hair. And it's just, it's an ever-going cycle. Yeah, yeah, I feel you. I feel you so deeply, Grace. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. (laughs) Mike Mike Ross, I know I kind of Frankensteined your question a little bit here, but I know you've gone through some evolutions with your hair over the years. Oh, yeah. Um, So... I just, I, I don't have a problem with, with graying because I mean, in my beard, I would say probably half of my beard now is either gray or white. Um, and, and I don't mind it. I have no problem with it. And I think that for a lot of men, there's just so much less sort of, um, stigma and, and and societal expectations mm-hmm. of it that that oh a man with you know with salt and pepper or, or gray or white oh that looks very distinguished oh i mean there's there's men who it actually works for george clooney oh yeah my goodness we're going to no be doubt. talking about colin farrell and his performance yeah. in 13 lives a little bit later in the show with michael mcneely i watched it last week he colin farrell looks like amazing with the salt and pepper thing yeah, and and I I think that the the uh, there's almost this movement um, of, of of women who have let their hair go gray or white, and and people are very much behind it. There's like social media movements behind that as well, saying why is it why is it okay to to you know talk about men and how good they look with with gray and white hair? Why don't we talk about how beautiful women can be with white or gray hair? Uh, but for me. That wasn't, I, I never really got a lot of gray in my hair before it was started just to thin out so much. And the hairline and the, the, the just the balding spots just got to be so bad that there just wasn't anything I could do with it anymore. So I just shaved it off and I go with the uh, the Daddy Warbucks uh, look and uh, it's nice and uh, nice and polished up there sometimes I if I go about 3 days without shaving my head I feel like oh my god I need a haircut yeah yeah um, which is which is pretty crazy like I, I at first it was no big deal but now I, I get to the point where I just I can't stand having more than 2 or 3 days growth up there it's got to get the blade out so um no I it, it wasn't so much that I was aging or I was, I, I didn't like how it necessarily looked. It was just that there was nothing I could do with it anymore. It was yeah. just so thin yeah. and, and, and patchy. So, Mike, thank you for yeah. your thoughts on this one. We'll talk to you a little bit later for the big business story of the day where we'll dive into what some companies are doing to jump on this train. But we'll get there in about an hour or so. Mike, thank you for this. At AMI Audio is where you find us on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. Let's go back to Grace Scofield, who has the National Weather Updates. 
Thanks, Dave. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Did I surprise you there? Did the, microfo- bit, did the little, microphone surprise you? The microphone surprised me. Hit a little bit too early, but that was my own <laughs> fault. <laughs> I blame it on me. And I'll take I'll take the blame for this one. That's okay. We'll share the blame. Okay. Accountability goes okay. goes goes fully around. <laughs> In today's National Weather Report, we are starting off in St. John's, Newfoundland, where it's becoming a mix of sun and cloud this morning with a 40% chance of shower late this afternoon and a high of 25 degrees. In Halifax, a mix of sun and cloud with a 30% chance of showers late this afternoon and a high of 26 degrees. In Montreal, there's some showers ending this afternoon. Then it'll be cloudy with a 40% chance of showers and a risk of a thunderstorm all day. But the temperature will remain steady near 20 degrees. In Ottawa, a few showers ending early this morning, then cloudy with a 40% chance of showers and a risk of a thunderstorm. The high is 21 degrees. In Toronto today, it's cloudy with a 30% chance of showers and a risk of a thunderstorm this afternoon with a high of 25 degrees. In Thunder Bay, it's mainly cloudy with a 30% chance of showers late this afternoon and a high of 26 degrees. Over in Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's sunny today and the high is 27 degrees. In Saskatoon, it's sunny this morning, then a mix of sun and cloud, with a 60% chance of showers this afternoon and a risk of a thunderstorm this afternoon as well, and the high is 29 degrees. In Calgary, Alberta, a mix of sun and cloud, with a 30% chance of showers late this afternoon, with a risk of a thunderstorm, and a high of 28 degrees. In Edmonton, Alberta, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and cloud this afternoon. The high is 31 degrees. Up in Yellowknife, a mix of sun and cloud today with a 30% chance of showers late this afternoon and a risk of a thunderstorm. The high is 23 degrees. In Vancouver, BC, some increasing cloudiness today with 40% chance of showers late this afternoon and a high of 22 degrees. And in Victoria, B.C., it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and cloud this morning with a high of 21 degrees. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Grace. Coming up next, we kick off the weekly news panel and reflect on the past six months of the Russia-Ukraine war. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's Friday, so that means we kick off the news panel, which also means we bring in Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Good morning, Joita. And good morning, Michelle. Good morning. Okay, let's let's try this one more time. Good morning, Joita. Good morning, Dave. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, I got you loud and clear. And good and good morning, Michelle. I'm here too, I swear. There you go. Sometimes our panel is so exciting, we need to say hello twice. Okay, guys, let's jump right into our first topic. It's been six months since Russia invaded Ukraine. I want to give you some baseline statistics here. Over 5,000 civilians have been killed. 
Tens of thousands of military personnel have died. Millions of refugees have fled the country. Billions of dollars in direct military and humanitarian assistance have been spent. Indirectly, we're rapidly approaching a trillion dollars. Energy prices have skyrocketed. And the war has catalyzed a significant food crisis, particularly in developing countries. Juita, those are just the baseline numbers, but I know you've got more threads that you want us to tug at here. Yes, and the most important one, I think, is whether anyone is surprised that it's dragged on as long as it has. It's had, the, the war in Ukraine has had tremendous ripple effects uh, across the world, impacting everything from humanitarian aid, displacing uh, millions of people. Uh, it's diverted, in a lot of cases, a lot of money and funding towards fighting the war. Um, and it's there have been significant sanctions imposed on Russia, so I'm curious about whether um, the current regime will be able to survive. Um, this is a really, it, this is a story that has dominated the headlines for the last six months. And uh, I think it's a good time to uh, take a breath and look back on the last six months and also to look forward and, and think through some of the implications of the war and um, on, on Russia, on Ukraine, but also right here in Canada and, um, you know, also, of course, in Europe, so many displaced refugees and things like that. So there are many things to unravel here, and I look forward to talking to all of you about them. So when we first talked about the war on this panel after the invasion, some speculation had already existed from analysts about a quagmire, what Russia had walked into here and how long this conflict might last. And I threw some cold water on that. I said, we can't talk about a quagmire two days into an invasion of a country. Now we're six months in, and it really does appear that a lot of the focus in fighting really is eastern U- is in eastern Ukraine. It seems like the charge to Kiev is pretty much off the table at this point. So I would say that I am, I'm a little surprised by how bogged down this war has already become and how focused some of the fighting has become. Michelle, what about you? Uh, I'm not so surprised, but I can't chalk that up to my own, you know, military brilliance or anything. It's just that I, I always tend to assume the worst with these things and tend to assume that they're going to drag on longer than expected. And also, I didn't have a particularly good grasp of what the situation with the Russian military was and the kind of force they could muster and what kind of offensives they could press forward with successfully. Um, I still don't feel like I have a terrific handle on that. It's actually quite interesting to see when, when you're talking about some of those numbers uh, to watch international efforts to come to grips with what with, with the Russian military situation is, what their casualty count has been, uh, what kind of resources they have available to them. That kind of stuff is still a bit up in the air, but you're, I mean, it, it's, it's pretty clear now that things are bogging down. I think the quagmire metaphor is apt now. Um, it's been interesting to see some pieces taking stock of where things stand. And basically what's happened is Ukraine has successfully pushed back a number of, of Russian defenses. There's a couple of regions where the Russians have been able to seize control. Uh, even there, though, in some of those regions, there just seemed to be a bit of pushback. So uh, I unfortunately suspect we might be having this conversation for a while. Yeah, we'll end up having it at nine months and 12 months and 15 months and 18 months. And Michelle, I think you... Had- on, on, that, on that front, can I just add, too, that some people have been quite rightly pointed out that it's been six months of war for those of us watching from the West. For people living in some regions of the Ukraine, they're talking about years worth of yeah, fighting. And this is not, in fact, all that yeah, new. 2014, yeah. Crimea, so it, that's been an ongoing... It's been ongoing something, battles, yeah. 
it's something we outsiders tend to lose track of, I think, is the <laughs> sheer scale of the suffering going on. Yeah. There. Michelle, you identified there that there's been a lot of support coming in from uh, nations all across the world, whether it be direct military aid, whether it be money, et cetera, et cetera. I do think that's another reason as to why this has gone on as, as long as it has, because of just the sheer volume of support that's come from world powers like the UK, mm -hmm. come from the US, mm -hmm. come from Australia. There's There's been a lot of spending to keep the keep Ukraine in this position, in this war, to continue protracting the conflict. Joita, sorry, we you asked the question, then Michelle <laughs> and I went off on our own little honor pathway there. But are you surprised the conflict has gone on this long? Um, yes and no. Um, many commentators, especially those who were in support of uh, of the of the Russian invasion, were saying that this is going to be a quick uh, victory. And of course, we know now that it wasn't a, a quick victory, but at the time, many soldiers and officers had packed their parade uniforms expecting that they'll need to pull them out like in a few days, maybe a few weeks. And I think the reason for the optimism was that the Russian military had perceived itself as liberators yeah. and that there would not be as much grassroots opposition to the invasion as there has been. And of course, you both pointed out that there's been a lot of spending to prop up the war. Um, the, the West in particular has both heavily sanctioned Russia, but has also diverted a, a billions of dollars towards uh, military aid um, and rallied NATO because there's a lot of uh, fear about uh, Russian expansionism, especially when you look at some of the countries that used to form the former Soviet bloc. Uh, now, of course, countries like Poland and Romania, um, which border Russia, and our NATO members today being concerned about uh, this uh, this war and, of course, perceive, perceived Russian expansionism. If you think back to the Afghanistan war, um, there had not been nearly as much consternation uh, about Russia invading Afghanistan. There uh, had in that instance also been a great deal of foreign aid uh, funneled towards the, uh, the opponents of uh, Russia's opponents in that war. And the war in Afghanistan, of course, dragged on for 10 years. So um, it really comes down to who you talk to when you think about whether there was surprise or consternation about how long this war has dragged on. But I think it's evident today that the war is in a bit of a quagmire and it is likely to carry on in this vein for quite some time. Joita, you mentioned the sanctions and certainly that is having an impact on the Russian economy and there are some folks that continue to speculate what kind of impact that may have on Vladimir Putin. As we think about the two leaders at the center of this, Vladimir Zelensky in Ukraine, Vladimir Putin in Russia, what do you think their hold on power is as we move forward here? Because I think I think there's been a lot of speculation mm -hmm. about Putin. I don't know if there's been as much about Zelensky, but especially the last month or so, last six weeks or so, he's ratcheted up the tenor by which he's asking for more resources and asking for more sanctions. And I actually wonder at what point allies start saying, hey, we actually need you to get to the negotiating table on this. We're, we're propping you up. We're spending a lot of money. We're dealing with an energy crisis here. We actually need you to try and start negotiating something to get out of this war. So I, so, so I, I don't just want to focus here strictly on Putin, but both mm. leaders at the center of this. Michelle, what, what do you make of the push and pull and pressures that may exist on those particular leaders? 
I think you raise a really, really good point about where Zelensky's been headed lately. Uh, that said, I think it's going to take a lot for the early, early impressions of his wartime leadership to fade. Mm-hmm. I think when people hear Volodymyr Zelensky's name, they still picture like early on the guy who was right there in the streets making really stirring addresses, powerful appeals to people, really embodying the sort of we're going to go fight him spirit that we've been seeing for a lot from Ukraine. Um, so I suspect his position is still pretty safe for the time being, but you raise a very good point about a potential shift in tone or, or, or dialogue or support levels at some point. Not yet. We're still seeing the U.S. recently signed like a huge bill of additional aid for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, three Germany billion, and Canada. Th- three billion yeah, of direct like, aid promised this week. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a few bucks. Um, you know, Canada and Germany were still uh, very much on, on side with, with Zelensky in, in their recent meetings. Uh, Secretary General of NATO is, is, is in town today. We're going to hear a news conference if Ukraine doesn't come up there. I don't know much about news. Um, <laughs> so I, like, I, I think it's going to be a while before we see a shift, but you, the, the, you know, the possibility certainly exists. As for Putin, I, again, I, I'm kind of hesitant to really take a, a bold stand here. Um, people who know a whole lot more than I do on this front say that there is suggestions of, of mounting tensions internally uh, within the Kremlin. I, I, do, I can't, I, I have no choice but to sort of take their word for it. Uh, but certainly a lot of people who have opposed the war in Russia have either been punished or have fled the country. Uh, there's been a lot of... of uh, back and forth and, and drama recently, uh, most recently resulting in, in the, the killing of uh, Putin ally's daughter. So it's it's a very tricky situation and one that I hesitate to really concretely get my arms around. Yeah, it's, it's even tough to wrap our head around a lot of the reporting on the ground in Russia because so many That's agencies yeah. have pulled out of Russia, right? There's been such a disconnect. It's almost it's, like a free press really matters. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> Michelle, uh, uh, stirring remarks from Michelle McQuig on a Friday morning. Uh, Joita, what do you make of the position of the uh, two leaders at the center of this? Um, with Zelensky, again, I have to agree with a lot of what Michelle is saying. He's still lauded as a hero, as someone who made stirring speeches and, this, and got really got people fired up. But I think when you think about Zelensky and whether or not diplomatic efforts have failed, and evidently, forgive me for stating the obvious, they're clearly not working. Um, I think it comes back to curtailing uh, Russia's ambitions. And so, yes, there is uh, an inflation uh, is a problem. Yes, gas prices and food prices have shot through the roof. Um, the only reason why, or one of the reasons why Ukraine is still getting as much support as it is, despite these obvious problems, and despite the large amounts of military spending, is because there is a lot of concern about Russian expansionism and um, NATO and its um, and NATO allies wanting to curtail that. So I don't think that Zelensky is in any is at any sort of risk at the moment of losing his grip on power. With that said, we know that wars going badly um, often do prompt regime changes. And if you think about how uh, things are going for Russia at the moment, I, I refer to the war in Afghanistan and Already in six months of fighting in Ukraine, Russia has lost about 15,000 soldiers, which equals the total number of casualties Russia suffered in Afghanistan over 10 years. That's huge. 
so again, they're they're clearly uh, uh, dealing with a far higher casualty count. Um, I uh, Michelle alluded to the assassination of. Putin allies, uh, and 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 whether it's unclear whether she, the daughter who was assassinated, was the intended target, or uh, whether it was her father and she got caught in the in the crossfire or in the crosshairs. Uh, but uh, Russian intelligence is claiming that Ukraine did it. But there are also Russian dissident groups who are taking uh, responsibility for this, and there are protests, uh, not you know not made significant protests, but protests in Russia opposing the war. Of course, um, one of... Oh, I wonder the if... The Russian economy hello? is suffering as a result of the war for the first time... Hello? Yeah, sorry, Joita, we, we, we had a little break oh, up in the, mid- in the middle of your sentence there. So re- re- sorry about re- that. So rewind, Russian- rewind by 10 seconds. Sure. So um, in addition to some of the political instability, the Russian economy is also suffering as a result of the war. For the first time since 1989, Russia has actually defaulted on its debt, not to mention that the ruble is in decline. So we've, uh, one of the things you know we talk a lot about is the exodus of Ukrainian migrants, but 300,000 Russians have also left. And we're mostly talking about professionals and specialists. I have say that given the massive EU and US sanctions against Russia and the impacts of that, it's entirely possible that the oligarchy in Russia is going to turn around and uh, and hold Putin responsible. And with that said, he's been around since uh, as far as back as 2000 in some capacity or other. So he's quite pernicious. And I don't know if this alone will dislodge him from power. But uh, wars, as I just said a few minutes ago, wars not going well, a really significant factor in prompting regime change. So I, 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 I I don't want to get into crystal ball gazing and predictions and, you know, trying to figure out what's going to happen down the road. But I think Vladimir Putin is in a, in a far more precarious position compared to Zelensky, uh, at least in the way that things are, are shaking out right now. As always, we're already tight for time, guys. So we need to be quick on our thoughts in regards to the refugee crisis. But certainly there have been some threads to pull at here um, in regards to the way that Ukrainian refugees have been treated, uh, oftentimes, especially in Canada, open with well, uh, welcomed with open arms. But Michelle, any thoughts on the refugee crisis side of the conflict? Yeah, uh, we're starting to see now the fact that uh, the fact that the country is willing to welcome refugees warmly and openly does not necessarily mean that they're willing or, or able to support them properly when they arrive. Uh, this is where we're starting to see some of that action develop now. Uh, we've already ha- seen, for instance, some groups of refugees calling for and eventually getting meetings with with with. Uh, prominent medical officials, for instance, to try and secure health care. Uh, we're hearing more of these kinds of stories. And it is interesting to do things that we don't have time for today. But an- another day, it might be fun to do a more of a deep dive contrast between the way certain groups of refugees are welcomed in, in, in this country. Uh, the Syrian refugee crisis is another obvious uh, starting point, That, although that one went better than my, many might expect. But for instance, if you're talking about real-time comparisons, uh, looking at the way Ukrainian refugees and those fleeing the return of the Taliban in Afghanistan have been treated would make for a good exercise one of these days. Yeah, I, I think we at times have touched on that over the last six months as well. So it's it's not as if that has not been addressed on this show, but that's why I'm saying mm-hmm. we need to be a little bit quicker here, Joita. But I know that aspect did jump out to you. 
Yeah, that, that's certainly something that we can delve into a little bit more. But there's a couple of things here. One, uh, although the reception towards Ukrainian refugees has generally been very positive, at least in Eastern Europe, Europe where they've accepted large number of, res, uh, of refugees, that sentiment is starting to vein a little bit. Plus, we want to be really clear, not all refugees fleeing the, the war in Ukraine have been treated the same, especially when you think about Roma refugees. They've really been treated very differently from non-Roma refugees, according to reporting by CNN. Uh, many have been put in a very non-standard detention conditions, have been refused uh, refugee status because they didn't have passports. There have been allegations made that they're not Ukrainian. So it also matters which refugees from Ukraine we're actually talking about. One of the things um, that there has been a really warm welcome for Ukrainian refugees in Canada. And I think one of the reasons for that is that there is already a really well-established uh, Ukrainian diaspora in places in Canada. They've been, they've been around for decades. So there were a lot of people with Ukrainian origins who were willing to rally the community and rally support for refugees fleeing the war. And I think that might be one of the reasons uh, that might explain why Ukrainian res refugees have had a different trajectory in places like Canada vis-a-vis -vis other refugee groups. We talked a little bit about some of the cascading impacts and effects of this war, both in the intro that I gave, but also through a couple of answers in this question. I'm going to hold you guys to one each, one impact or effect of this war that jumps out to you. For me, it's actually a little bit of positivity. We've seen a lot of push now towards more investment in renewable energy. Frankly, it should have happened 15 years ago, but this war certainly has catalyzed that conversation and even catalyzed some deals. We saw the hydrogen deal signed between uh, Canada and Germany this week, although there's going to be some practicality questions on that getting done. But I think it's very positively impacted the renewable energy conversation. Michelle, what about you? It certainly has. That's a good one. I, uh, I keep coming back to inflation because it well, it's not the only factor at the heart of this issue. It is a big one. And I suspect the inflation is going to be a driving factor in a number of elections to come. The U.S. midterms are the most obvious example coming up. But I think uh, inflation is going to be the elephant in the room for a number of political conversations in numerous countries in the years ahead. So I think it's unavoidable that the war in Ukraine does not get, enter that mix in some form. Joita, last word to you. It's got to be quick, but an impact of the war that jumps out to you. Well, it's not going to be natural resources or inflation because you guys talked about it. But I think I just want to maybe talk a little bit about the impact on humanitarian work. Uh, according to the Red Cross, this war in Ukraine has really stretched humanitarian and relief efforts and has had impacts on other conflict and war zones uh, across the world. So it'll be really interesting to see how those efforts uh, pan out if this war continues to drag on. Guys, thank you for reflecting on these last six months and some of the bigger implications. Coming up next, Saskatchewan will be handing out $500 rebates this fall. We share our thoughts on giving residents a cash dividend when resources boom. This is the Now News Panel on AMI. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Let's drill into our next topic. Saskatchewan will be handing out $500 checks to residents this fall as the province finds itself with excess cash from rising oil and potash prices. Finance Minister Donna Harpower says high commodity prices have put Saskatchewan back in black after the province ran a deficit for the last seven years. I think it is a huge moment that it's not only balanced, but it's balanced so strongly. However, I will still be very concerned 
concerned as I, as I enter into the deliberations for the next budget, that we cannot assume that prices will stay this high. Like, we cannot get caught up in the volatility of resource revenues. In fact, the prices are already going down. Beyond the rebate, the government is also reversing its plan to add provincial sales tax to gym memberships and some recreational activities. That's a topic we talked about on this show. And there's also been some criticism of the policy. The Saskatchewan Teachers Federation says the tax credit checks could have been spent to help out the school system. The provincial NDP says the Saskatchewan party should have provided this relief months ago and is criticizing the government for sitting on billions of windfall revenues. It's worth noting Saskatchewan has hardly invented this idea. Alaska has it baked right into the structure of their government that they give residents a payment based on the cultivation of natural resources. Joanna, what do you make of giving residents a cash dividend from when resources boom? Oh, we need to unmute Joanna. Uh, It's a conservative policy. Basically, this idea that if there is a windfall, you should cut residents a check and hand them over $500 or $300, what have you, rather than reinvest that into social programs or even infrastructure projects. It's the kind of, I mean, my first reaction was, is there an election coming? Uh, There's not. There's not. I can say reaction. Uh, but there is there there is not. Um, but again, it speaks to this idea that you know, if your income is a hundred thousand dollars, five hundred dollars is probably uh, a negligible amount to you. It's a drop in the bucket. It won't really make too much difference. And let's say you were really low income and you had an income of $12,000, which could be true for someone on social assistance. I would wonder if that $500 is actually going to get clawed back. Uh, so it's... it's um, it's a really blunt instrument. I don't think it's going to really help individual residents as much as pooling that you know the money and and, and applying it towards a social program, uh, towards some kind of infrastructure project, so that the legacy can live on and benefit the public. Michelle, what do you think about the idea of giving residents a check when resources boom? I have to say, I had the same reaction of saying, I wonder when the next Saskatchewan election is. And it turns out it's not for another couple of years. Um, Joeed is right. It's it's basically chapter and verse from the Conservative playbook. Um, I was a bit surprised to hear that the backlash did not focus much on potential health care spending. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, pushback on education it makes a certain amount of sense. I suspect there's at least some Saskatchewan residents and certainly a lot of political uh, types who would like to see the money spent more along those lines or more in terms of, of shoring up healthcare resources or other uh, you know, provincial programs. Um, Donna Harpower herself mentioned another potential use for this kind of money to protect against that rainy day and start developing that fund for when resources prices do come down again. Um, but I'm, I'm, I can't say I'm surprised by this move. It's very, very on brand for the Saskatchewan party, which is a conservative party. Um, it plays well politically. It will play very well to that specific base in Saskatchewan. And uh, I can't say I'm surprised by this maneuver particularly. 500 bucks, I will notice, is a bit more of a generous check than you're accustomed to seeing for this kind of thing. So it's a bit notable on those grounds. I, I think it's a fair idea, although I would argue that I would actually like to see something closer to the Alaskan model, which is sort of an annual dividend that you're going to get regardless of the commodity going up or down. It's if we're extracting resources from your state, you are going to get 
part of that windfall directly. But I do, I do agree, guys. I do agree with the criticism that sometimes there's some structural spending that is important here, right? We always talk about the state of education, healthcare in this country. And Michelle, you're right to identify that maybe my criticisms that I highlighted there were narrow. I pulled this from an article, them from an article that came out pretty much immediately after the announcement. So I'm sure yesterday uh, the Nurses Federation or the Doctors Federation probably came out and said, we want some of this pie as mm-hmm. well. And that's what leads me to my next question. Although these criticisms are super understandable and also relevant, it's also kind of predictable, isn't it, Michelle? Mm-hmm. Oh, it, of course it is. Although I will say uh, that in a different province, the NDP's line would have probably been focused more on social program spending rather than urging the government to sh- shell out this dividend months ago. Uh, so I found that a bit of an interesting window into the state of political discourse in Saskatchewan that mm. the opposition party has to frame things along those lines rather than in terms of what a lot of people would consider to be the traditional NDP playbook. Um, but yeah, you're right. There, there is not that much surprising about any element of this. Like I said, and Joita too, uh, this particular policy is a pretty uh, hallmark conservative one, very on brand for this party. And the opposition reaction has largely followed suit, I would say. Joita, I think you may have tipped your cards to the answer on this question (laughs) in your first answer. But although, again, the, the criticism is being very valid, also a little bit predictable. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty predictable reaction. But again, we have to bear in mind that public agencies, we talk about healthcare or education, they don't have individual autonomy. Um, they exist, uh, obviously, for the public good. And so we, I think that the, the discourse which would sort of go, come down by, this, the discourse that would sort of um, rear its head by saying, oh, you know, teachers just want higher salaries or nurses just want to be paid more. We have to really dispense with that kind of thinking and really think about reinvesting some of this money into social programs. So this push and pull, this tug of war between two, um, you know, is is quite predictable in that we are essentially having an ideological debate. So yeah, you're right. I kind of gave my answer away in the first question. But uh, but the, the point being, um, I would have even been happier to see other sort of targeted approaches. Um, you know, we haven't talked about the escalating price of food. I mean, they could have applied this towards some kind of a rebate on the price of food. Mm, targeting mm. the rebate towards low-income populations in an intelligent way might have also been uh, something to look at. I think the NDP did call for um, a diminishment, a diminishing the sales tax on clothing for children. So even like a targeted, uh, targeted uh, disbursement of this money might have had uh, better results rather than just cutting a check for everybody across the board. Speaking of retargeting, I have an idea. Not to dive too deep into economic theory here, but here's the broad question. Should paying off debt actually be a priority when a government runs a surplus? Maybe not the entire surplus going there, but perhaps part of it. In the short term and the long term, that means less payments servicing the debt annually, which means more money in the actual coffers of the government going to those social programs that we're talking about. Now, bear with me here. I'm going to try and keep the math really, really simple, but I want to put it in tangible numbers. Let's say you knock off a billion dollars of debt at, say, 2.5% annual interests. That means next year you're paying $25 million less in interest. And again, for the sake of simplicity, the population of Saskatchewan's 1.2 million people, let's just say a million residents of Saskatchewan are eligible for these checks. That's 500 million of the surplus. So under 
what I'm calling the Brown Deficit Proposal. You're still giving folks their $500 check, but using $500 million to lower interest payments to $12.5 million, and then $12.5 million that we can now reinvest in the system. I think that's a fair compromise. What do you think, Joita? I think you are onto something. And I'll give you an example that I think is quite relatable to people. It's like if you have a bit of extra money and you happen to have a mortgage, make a lump sum payment at the end of the year. That brings down your principal and the amount of interest you pay on your mortgage. It's the same idea. So while you can't, don't necessarily have to eliminate your debt, uh, it certainly is helpful if you can reduce the debt to GDP ratio and in, and reduce the amount of money that goes towards servicing the debt. So I would have been very happy to see some or even all of this money go towards paying off the debt with the caveat that actually um, Saskatchewan's debt to GDP ratio is towards the lower end mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. spectrum. They actually carry less debt compared to a lot of the other provinces or even the federal government. So just with that caveat in place, I'd have been quite happy to see some of that money go towards the debt. Yeah, my, my question obviously is not specific to Saskatchewan. I think this is something we even saw in the 90s under the Chrétien Martin liberals. After a whole bunch of austerity, they started running surpluses and using that to pay down some of the debt in some of those surpluses. Michelle, what do you think of the Great Brown Compromise of 2022? The Great Brown Compromise has some very persuasive math behind it. That's all I'm willing to commit to because I this is not my area of strength. But boy, <laughs> would I love to see Dave Brown in a bear pit with other economic theorists to hash oh, stuff man. out. Because they, I think it's a very... they would maul me. They For would real, maul me. <laughs> I'd love to watch that. <laughs> I, I, I am pro Dave. We'll let the record show. <laughs> I am my team Dave, but I, I do think it's a really interesting idea, and I would love to hear those with who are better informed on the subject than me. Uh, take a really good look at it. Yeah, there's some definite folks who live in the uh, new monetary policy line of thinking in, in economics who would tell me that I'm absolutely off base and they would maul away at me and said bear pit, but we'd have a good time. Guys, thank you for this. Coming up after the break, Finnish Prime Minister Sanna Marin was caught on video. I'm going to put this in quotation marks, partying during her vacation. Yeah. We contemplate how we feel about politicians partying it up. This is the Now News Panel on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's the news panel with Michelle and Joita. We've got one more topic to discuss. We talked about this earlier in the week. Finnish Prime Minister Sanna Marin was caught on video, quote, partying during her vacation. Partying is maybe a little bit of a stretch. She was dancing and taking selfies with friends at a party. And I can't substantiate this, but I think there may have been a drink or two involved. But it has begged the question, how do we feel about partying politicians? Michelle, let's skip the opening remarks and jump into some of the isms here because there were accusations of sexism, ageism, and there's some other stuff fanning the flames. I would argue that when you're in a country next to a, uh, next to Russia that already has done one invasion this year, maybe you don't want the prime minister partying it up. But overall, what do you make of some of the issues that are fanning the flames here. Uh, classism is another one that's been raised. Uh, apparently, Santa Marin comes from a, a more tra- a tra- what's considered more traditional blue-collar type background than the, uh, say, a, a more blue-blooded background like that of Justin Trudeau, our, our prime minister. All those isms have been tossed around and have, I think, really contributed to making this quote-unquote scandal one with more legs than perhaps it has any right to be. Um, I personally 
the whole reason I brought this to the panel is because I find all those isms particularly interesting. Um, I, I, I like to sort of play a little game in my head where I think about how this might have played out with different leaders in the mix. Uh, would a female, or, or, sorry, would a male political leader have been subject to the same degree of scrutiny to the point where he actually wound up taking a drug test to prove that he wasn't, quote, partying in that sense of the word? Um, all of these things have boiled up over the past week, and I do suspect that a lot of the questions that are being raised, a lot of the critiques that are coming her way, have been influenced by some of those various isms. I think all of them uh potentially have played a role in this situation. Yeah, I, I do think the ageism side of this does matter, right? Someone Definitely. who's 36 years old, people just look at them and say, oh my goodness, look at them having their dancing in their selfies. Whereas like how many uh, uh, glasses of champagne go down at your average like diplomatic dinner, right? Like it's it's just a matter, like it's a matter G7, of style. Like as if, yeah, like the G7 meetings are, I'm sure are not exactly. Yeah, no, no drinks served at the G7 meeting. Uh, Joita, let's not dwell too long on the isms and the other issues fanning the flames, but, but what do you make, what do you make of the isms and the issues fanning the flames? Yeah, I'm sure some of that is at play, the ageism, the sexism, the classism, ageism, and that I think she has been castigated for doing something that uh, many people her age and of her background might be doing on a Friday night or on holidays. So there's a bit of that. Yeah. So there's a bit of that happening, but I'm not so sure about the sexism because I do think a a male politician who was partying gregariously on vacation or not, and we can, you know, we can pull that one apart in a bit. I think they might have been similarly castigated. I think the issue here that um, we haven't really talked about and doesn't relate to an ism at all is that I think there are some expectations about decorum associated with being in a public office. So if you are uh, the prime minister, the president, someone in a high-profile public role, whether or not you're on holiday, there is an expect an expectation that you will conduct yourself in a certain way. And I think if you deviate from the script, uh, whether you're a man or woman, young or old, uh, you may find yourself getting criticized for acting in a way that impugns the integrity or the the, the sort of the, the of the of the office that you inhabit. Yeah, the job comes with responsibilities. There's there's no doubt about that. They even talk about that in the media industry, right? Right when you're in school, like make sure you don't get pictures on social media of you holding a drink. An employer might hold that against you one day, as if like <laughs> that employer is uh, also not enjoying the occasional cocktail. Um, That's it. Uh, let's let's do the thought experiment, guys. We've only got about two minutes on the clock, so I'm going to throw three names out here: Justin Trudeau, Joe Biden. Donald Trump. What if it had been these three? And I'll tell you my my position on this right now. Those who oppose them politically would say it's the worst thing in the world. Those who support them would say, ah, that's fine. Joita, what do you think? Well, I think um, Donald Trump certainly got away with a lot while he was in office. So did, you didn't mention him, but Rob Ford also got away with a lot of quote-unquote partying. And there were actually drugs involved in that instance. Uh, both of them were able to finish out their term. So it didn't cause any major scandals, which is why I'm not entirely convinced about the sexism angle to this. Uh, but certainly there may not have been as much pearl clutching if um, you know if it had been a male politician. But there was criticism. And, and male politicians have been criticized. Pierre Trudeau, for example, has been criticized heavily in the past or was criticized size for clowning around on camera. Uh, Michelle, what do you think? I've got those three names of the thought experiment there, and I put together. Yeah. I, put, I put my position forward that is those who oppose them politically are going to be critical of it, and those who support them are going to be like, yeah, who cares? I, I largely agree with that, actually, but I do think Justin Trudeau might face additional critiques that the other more elderly politicians might not. And that's where I do think ageism does come into the mix. I think he'd be more open to the kinds of critiques that Santa Marin has been hearing. All of this to say, though, circling back to what Joita said, I, I, I don't know, to me, one of the many issues raised by this whole situation is the notion of, of, of mental health supports for people in these very prominent positions of leadership. Mm. Where's the right to blow off some steam? 
Uh, you know, yoga isn't for everyone. Uh, reading a good book sometimes doesn't get the job done. Are you not allowed to go and have a good time with some friends? Uh, it's those those notions of what proper comportment and deportment mean in these sorts of offices that I think are probably going to come up for additional scrutiny in the years and decades to come because I think people are starting to take a bit more of a holistic look at the people behind these offices. I know that our daily polls are by no means uh, scientifically full of rigor, but uh, we had over 60 votes on our poll that we took on Monday. And the overwhelming majority said they're either cool with politicians, uh, like partying or having fun, or they don't care. So I think when we sometimes this might be one of those stories where like the controversy that exists online is a couple of loud voices. And then we kind of pick up on it on the industry and we're like, oh, well, there's some people who are loudly talking about this. And then yet maybe like the rest of the world is a little bit more chiller about it. I don't know. I, I think sometimes that can happen as well. Uh, Michelle, Joita, we got to get out of here. I'm sorry. I left you guys hanging on kind of a media criticism thoughts and I'm, it's kind of me to me. But here I am. That's what I do. No I'm just a mean kind of guy. Uh, Joita, thank you for this. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You as well. Michelle, you enjoy your weekend as well. We'll talk to you on Monday morning. Take care, everybody. That's Michelle McQuig, the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Joita Gupta is the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Dave Brown. I'm the host of Now with Dave Brown. But after the break, Mike Ross will be here with the regional news update and the big business story of the day. And Jeff Ryman will stop by for his very last sports chat on Now with Dave Brown right here on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-audio, AMI-tv, AMI.ca, and the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, August 26th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Michael McNeely stops by to share his review of the film 13 Lives, which you can find on Amazon Prime, starring Viggo Mortensen and Colin Farrell. And just in time for Back to School, Rachel Bro from the Center for Equitable Library Access will share some featured titles about school and education. Let's bring in Mike Ross. He has the regional news update. Police say a man who died incident that occurred moments earlier. Police have not confirmed the man's identity, but the family of Chris Amiot, an Ojibwa man from Manitoba, says he was the man who died on the downtown east side Monday. Vancouver Police Sergeant Steve Addison says the Independent Investigations Office, BC's police watchdog, now have jurisdiction over the investigation. He said in a news conference Monday that a beanbag shotgun had been used. Addison says the weapon is a safe and effective, less lethal tool, and that the IIO would determine whether the man who died was in possession of a weapon. To the prairies, police in Winnipeg have arrested a 15-year-old boy and issued a Canada-wide warrant for another teen in the death of an Indigenous woman this week. 36-year-old Danielle Don Ballantyne was found dead in an apartment in the Point Douglas area Monday morning. Police say the two teens will be charged with second-degree murder in her death. Investigators also believe the killing is connected to the assaults of three men in their 50s that took place in the same neighborhood earlier that morning. 
Saskatchewan RCMP have issued a province-wide warrant for the arrest of a Nova Scotia man suspected in an assault in the rural municipality of Viscount. Jeremy McKenzie is also believed to have strong connections to an extremist group called Diagalon. Police say he's been charged with one count each of assault, pointing a firearm, using a restricted weapon in a careless manner, and mischief. The RCMP say the charges stem from an assault that happened in November 2021, but was reported to them in March 2022. Mackenzie also faces charges in connection to a protest outside the home of the chief medical officer in Nova Scotia. To Ontario, two long-term care homes have been fined $1,100 by the province for not providing air conditioning in residents' rooms. Legislation passed last year required that homes install air conditioning in all resident rooms by June 22nd. The government says Vision Nursing Home in Sarnia has refused to install air conditioning and has no plans in place to do so, while McCormick Home in London is debating the definition of air conditioning and is not publicly reporting room temperatures. A spokesperson for McCormick Homes says its residents' quality of life is its top priorities. Vision Nursing Home has not yet responded to a request for comment. And to the Atlantic region, Halifax's police chief says he wasn't aware about reports of a turf war between his police force and the RCMP. Dan Kinsella made the comments on the witness stand at the public inquiry into the Nova Scotia mass shooting, which is investigating how a gunman murdered 22 people over two days in April 2020. A September 2021 report commissioned by the Mounties noted that RCMP staff said in interviews there was an ongoing turf battle over operational control and funding between the Halifax Police and Nova Scotia RCMP. Kinsella says he knows Halifax's model for an integrated police unit where RCMP and regional police work together is not perfect. And those are your top regional headlines going coast to coast across the country. And Mike, just before we start the uh, big business story of the day, the Canadian press just about a moment or two dropped across the wire that the Ontario science table that's uh, been charged with monitoring and framing COVID-19 policy has been dissolved. So uh, one week before the school year starts and with hospitalizations rising, I guess it was time to dissolve the science table. Well, it also came on the heels of the, the, the science table being unable to come to a consensus on whether kids in school should be masking up come the fall and the start of the school year. Mm-hmm. So uh, not surprising that if they can't if they can't come to consensus on something as big as that, uh, you know, where where does where does yeah. they go from here? What, yeah, what's the future of science yeah. table? Now we know. Yeah, it's almost like science requires like rigorous debate. It's almost like sometimes yeah. you can't find yeah. consensus on science. But anyway, neither here nor there. Uh, Mike, stay right there. You've got the big business story of the day. So this one relates to our daily poll, at least slightly. There's a tentacle that connects it, but you want to talk about the business of going gray. Yeah, so this is something I woke up to this morning that Wendy's yesterday uh, put up a new profile pic in their social media, and it uh, had the, the the long-standing Wendy's logo of a young red-headed girl, Wendy, uh, now with gray hair, and uh, you know it, it was accompanied by the message that you know uh, a, a graying star is still a star. Um, 
and then it had the hashtag Lisa Laflamme uh, included in that uh, post. And so now people are starting to talk about businesses, you know, tweeting about the Lisa Laflamme situation and um, somewhat sort of shaming uh, Bell Media indirectly, never really naming Bell Media, but uh, indirectly shaming them for uh, the dismissal of Lisa Laflamme, which uh, many uh, say uh, has to do with her decision to stop dyeing her hair during the pandemic and thus going gray. Uh, well, retail analyst Bruce Winder says, uh, you know, companies taking news moments like that and integrating them into their brand run a bit of a risk at looking a little bit opportunistic. Um, and that caution, of course, comes as many companies are, are making moves like that in the last week or so. And uh, with uh, the Canadian Twitter, let's be clear about this, Wendy's made that change to their Canadian Twitter account. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if other companies follow suit. What, what I did find uh, interesting as well was uh, Jeff Hutchinson, former uh, a, a news anchor or weather anchor at uh, CTV at uh, Canada AM, former colleague uh, at uh, CTV, he said he was glad to see, and he's been very vocal in his criticism of the treatment of Lisa Laflamme, uh, but he said he would rather have seen Wendy's also follow up with an actual business move, and that would be withholding advertising dollars from CTV. So a bit of a social media move here by Wendy's and other companies have uh, done the same and putting out uh, these tweets. We'll see though, if uh, as Jeff Hutchinson uh, is wishing to see, there'll be more of a business case to be made for withholding dollars because of uh, protest yeah. in the dismissal of Lisa LaFleur. Wendy's has a strong social media game. They do south of the border. They do north of the border. They're always dropping funny stuff and always kind of going at people and trolling. So that, that's on brand for them. And hey, good for them for cracking a good joke. Again, how authentic that is, who knows? But hey, it's a good campaign. I do want to make a comment on a different company that jumped in on this earlier in the week. It was Dove, who have mm -hmm. oftentimes been using the slogan, be beautiful in your own skin or something to that extent. I do think there's a, there's a stronger legitimacy for a place like Dove to make that commentary because that's their tagline. And listen, we can quibble all we want about whether or not beauty standards are somewhat still subverted inside that campaign. But irrespective, I think Dove was kind of in the right place there, framing it in a way that is on brand for them. The Wendy's thing seems like it's just kind of a funny play, and I think that's all it might be. But hey, listen, they've gotten publicity on our show today. It was featured in the Globe and Mail yesterday in the afternoon. I don't know if you guys read that, that article on the, sh on the Globe and Mail show this morning, but it's been all over over the place with sort of the exception of uh, CTV news feeds. So, you know, Wendy's is, a, Wendy's is a good play, and I'm sure uh, one or two folks might get a Baconator this week to, uh, you know, say they're showing their support. Yeah, and I think you're you're bang on there with the uh, the talk about Dove, and Dove has been you know a real leader in in pushing uh, that uh, that sort of whole movement of just being comfortable in your own skin, being comfortable with who you are, and they're I mean they're the first company that the beauty product company and soap company that I can recall that really went with that message, and and not just with the message, but they also shifted the the models they were using to advertise their products and thus moving away from the uh you know the, that traditional skinny you know blonde brunette uh, uh, model and and going with 
people of all sizes to reflect exactly who their customers were. So you're right. When when you talk about Dove's reaction to this and their move earlier this week, it was absolutely more on brand. Whereas Wendy's, it does seem a little sort of it's a troll. It's a uh, funny comical, troll. right? It is a troll. Uh, I, I think if anything, it, it plays well with them because of the the nature of their logo, right? A young yeah. redheaded girl suddenly is gray. Yeah, it was good. They can make that good. play, but you know, just to to follow up on what I said about Jeff Hutchinson and what he wants wanted to see or hopes to see from Wendy's, he did also say from Dove, he said, great message. You've always been on brand with that, but you really will speak more volumes if you start talking with your wallet. And that's what we hear as consumers all the time, right? Yeah. Let your wallet do the talking. In this case, there's calls now for these corporations to let the wallets do their do the talking instead of just a social media post. Mike, thank you for this. Have a great weekend. You too, Dave. That's Mike Ross with the big business story of the day. Jeff Ryman is here for his very last sports chat. Jeff, we'll get to uh, my broken heart in a couple of minutes, but let's let's at least look ahead to some pretty exciting stuff coming down the uh, sports pipeline. Uh, women's sports is going to be front and center mm-hmm. this weekend. We have the Women's World Cup of Hockey that's going on, or the Women's World Championships? Championship or World Cup? World Championships. Uh, under Already underway, and we have the LPGA Canadian Open underway in Ottawa as well. So women's sports front and center this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Um, the golf, Brooke Henderson, I, I believe it's in a rain delay right now. So yeah, yeah, it's raining, it's raining in a, Ottawa a little today. Bit. Yeah, so, uh, you know, you have to wait till I think, 10.30 to see the second round of that. Uh, that's obviously, I don't think it's getting uh, televised, uh, you know, or, or co- a lot of coverage uh, at, at all here in Canada, which is a little unusual. I wish we could see a little bit more of that. Um, but what is getting televised is, uh, you're right, um, the Women's World Cup with um, Team Canada winning yesterday 4-1 against Team Finland. Again, Finland is one of those teams that uh, seems to have really bolstered their women's national roster. They, they, they've put in a decent amount of money into the organization to uh, churn out better players. And we're starting to see that. I mean, 4-1 in, in women's hockey, believe it or not, is a you know, fairly close game, I would say. Um, tomorrow, or at least on Saturday, they get Switzerland. But Dave, the big game... I think a lot of people are looking forward to in this tournament is Canada USA that which goes on Tuesday. So uh, you might want to mark your calendars down for uh, Tuesday, August 30th at 2 p.m. Eastern, right smack dab in the middle of the day. But whenever Canada and USA and women's hockey get together, basically must watch TV. Yeah, I, I'm I, for what it's worth. I said this during the World Juniors and I'll say it during the Women's World Cup. Sign mm-hmm. me up when the rivalry game starts. Yep. I, in the same way that I wasn't interested in Canada beating Latvia 6-1 uh, in the first game of the tournament in the World Juniors, <laughs> I'm kind of in the similar deal with the Women's World Cup. Sign me up when the Canada-USA game starts. I, I'm not terribly interested in watching them beat uh, Finland or Switzerland 5-1 because even if the score was close, the Finnish goalie is one of the best goalies in the world. She has been spectacular for years yeah. and years. So that's more of like, hey, we outshot them 60-13, to but look how close the final score was. I, I, I need to watch 
competitive sports. Uh, Jeff, by the way, uh, CP Women's Open, uh, LPGA event, TSN, TSN 4. Uh, TSN 4, nice. TSN 5. Uh, all coverage already underway. But don't you dare change the channel. Don't you dare change the channel. Uh, Jeff, let's talk about the Jays real quick. I don't really care about tonight's game against the Angels, but tomorrow, no. oh baby, 3.07 Eastern time, Shohei Otani on the mound for the Angels, Manoa on the mound, Alec Manoa on the mound for the Jays. Oh, stick it in my veins. All stars battling each other. You got to love it. Two big boys as well. Um, one of the best Blue Jays pitchers we've seen in quite some time, actually. Alec Manoa really starting to flourish into a really good starting pitcher. Had a lot, last couple of games, a little bit rough, but, you know, still very nice season altogether. And Shohei Otani, I mean, showtime. Uh, this guy is a beast, both pitching and hitting. So, uh I'm going to love seeing seeing that matchup. But Dave, I also want to mention that we were talking about the Blue Jays probably last week and how that their schedule is a little bit easier, especially starting with with Boston. Uh, it was Boston. Now they have the lowly L.A. Angels, who I think have lost six in a row. Yeah, yeah they broomed, and then they, they, get broomed the, they broomed the Red Sox. The Red Sox are basically yeah. out of playoff contention now because the Jays broomed yeah. them this week. Really well done by the Jays. And even the Twins, yeah. Minnesota had a tough week. So did the White Sox. It's pretty much the Jays locked in now unless the Orioles catch them. So nice job by the Jays this week. That AL East is really tight. I mean, Tampa Bay, they're on a six-game winning streak. So, I mean, they're still number one in terms of wild card position in the AL. But the Jays right there winning 9 of 10. Like I said, they get the Angels, who have lost six in a row. After this, they get the Chicago Cubs, who have just been not good at all. They're bad. uh, Yeah, they're pretty bad this season. So, I think, you know, what I'm trying to get at here is that we talked about this is a golden opportunity for the Blue Jays to capitalize, and they've actually done it. So you got to give them credit there. But, of course, against the Angels, when there's Shohei Otani and, um, you know, Alec Manoa going head-to-head, why not? Yeah. I'm going to tune into that for sure. Yeah, that's that 3.07 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow. That That's a big one. That I, I sense there's going to be 43, 44, 45,000 people at that game yeah. tomorrow for a big one. The baseball fans are going to make their way into it for sure. Okay, Jeff, let's not worry about the NFL preseason. The NFL preseason is nonsense. You never know what you're going to get, whether starters or backups or whomever's playing. Let's take a couple of minutes here to say a proper goodbye to someone who's been a part of Now with Dave Brown since the inception of this show. You've also been a part of Live from Studio 5 since the inception of that show. You've been a fixture on the mornings on AMI-audio and AMI-tv for years now. We're going to miss you dearly. You're not fully going away. You're just focusing more work on the Kelly and Rumya show, which is really, really great. We don't talk about the amazing work you do on that show enough as a producer, but dude, we're going to miss you. You and I have been talking sports every day together since 2017 when we launched The Pulse. You are a pleasure. You're a pro. You love sports, and we love you, and we're going to miss you dearly, buddy. Dave, right back at you. It's been a pleasure working with you. Uh, I still remember, I think, the first hit I ever did on The Pulse. We talked about Yamir Yager. Um, <laughs> that was a, a great discussion in how he signed with the Calgary Flames, I think it was. That's how far back things go. Um, and I, I think, you know, a couple of things that really stand out over the course of our time is that we were still able to talk sports when there were no sports being broadcasted. I'm talking early days of, of COVID-19 oh, that. 
that March, that April, like there was absolutely nothing and we were still able to do it. So I, I you know, I pride myself on that. I, I think we, we all should, um, you know, being able to talk about something that didn't really exist for a couple of months. That was uh, pretty special. And just all the different reincarnations of this program, switching from live from Studio 5 to now with Dave Brown. Uh, I don't know, Dave, it's, it's been a really fun ride. I'm going to miss it. But you guys yeah. are in good hands. I mean, Brock Richardson taking over. That guy loves his sports, too. And so uh, looking forward to seeing what you guys are able to do uh, come, the, the, I yeah. guess, come this Monday. Week, come I'm this gone. Monday when, yeah, Brock, this when Monday. Brock joins this us Monday. for the first time next Monday. Yeah, yeah. we're super excited to be bring, bringing Brock in. He's, of course, the, the host of the Neutral Zone. He also does a regular contribution for you guys on Kelly and Company. And we're super excited to bring him in as on the day-to-day to cover both what's going on in the world of professional sports and bring in and leverage his experience as a, as a Paralympian. We are so, so excited. Yeah, Jeff, I just, I, 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 I just can't express enough gratitude for all the work you've done for us over the years. And I think that people need to understand that you started behind the board the day live from studio five launched and you've worked your tail off and worked your way up in this company and i know we're not allowed to talk about exactly what's happening with uh, kelly and company and kelly and ramya but there's big things a brewing and you're going to be a huge part of that yeah my role is uh changing pretty drastically um so i'm really excited about that uh, big changes coming in the fall for Kelly and company. So stay tuned for that. And I promise you, this is not just one of those things where I say it's a big thing and it's not actually a big thing. Like <laughs> this, is a, this is a massive thing. So uh, yeah, I need to be more focused on that role for sure. But I'm really, really excited to see the direction that AMI and AMI audio is going in. Yeah. So are we, we're really excited. There's going to be changes uh, rolling out here starting next week. So I'll, I'll let folks know a bit more about that on Monday as, as some uh, programming notes and some new characters and some new voices and some new people who are going to continue to help our show grow. But Jeff, in the meantime, my friend, you have yourself a great weekend and I know you and I are still going to be emailing uh, behind the scenes about all kinds of sports nonsense. Of course. And Dave, if you ever need to fill in for whatever reason, I'm your guy. You know where to contact me. We know your number, boss. That's Jeff. All the best, buddy. Have a great weekend. See you, Dave. That's Jeff Ryman. He is at the AMI Sports Desk. If you want the sports talk to continue today at 4 p.m. Eastern time, the neutral zone hits the airwaves. The crew will talk to Ontario Bacha athlete Jim Davis about his experience at the Provincial Championships. That's 4 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. And as Jeff and I just mentioned, one of the hosts of that show, Brock Richardson, officially on Monday, jumps into the role of the sports chatter on Now with Dave Brown. We are so excited to get Brock into the mix. You know, it's bittersweet. You don't want to say goodbye to Jeff, but we're delighted to say hello to Brock. Let's say hello to Grace Scofield for the National Weather Updates. Thanks, Dave. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We start off in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, where there's a mix of sun and cloud today with a high of 22 degrees. In Charlottetown, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and cloud later this morning with a high of 25 degrees. In St. John, a mix of sun and cloud today with a 60% chance of showers this afternoon and a risk of a thunderstorm. The high is 19 degrees. In Quebec City, some showers today with a high of 16 degrees. In Toronto, it's cloudy with a 30% chance of showers and a risk of a thunderstorm this afternoon with a high of 25 degrees. In Sault Ste. Marie today, it is sunny and the high is 21 degrees. 
Over in Brandon, Manitoba, it's sunny today, becoming a mix of sun and cloud this afternoon with a high of 28 degrees. In Regina, it's sunny this morning, then a mix of sun and cloud with 60% chance of showers this afternoon and a risk of a thunderstorm this afternoon as well. The high is 27 degrees. In Lethbridge, Alberta, a mix of sun and cloud today with a 30% chance of showers late this afternoon and a risk of a thunderstorm. The high is 28 degrees. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's sunny today. That will become a mix of sun and cloud this afternoon with a high of 29 degrees. In Whitehorse, a mix of sun and cloud today. The high is 17 degrees. In Kelowna, BC, a mix of sun and cloud with a 40% chance of showers late this afternoon and a risk of a thunderstorm. The high is 29 degrees. And in Vancouver, BC, there's some increasing cloudiness today with a 40% chance of showers late this afternoon and a high of 22 degrees. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Grace, thank you for this. We appreciate it. Coming up after the break, Michael McNeely will be here. He's got a review of the film 13 Lives that stars Viggo Mortensen and oh-so-dreamy Colin Farrell. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's a Friday edition of AMI at the movies with entertainment critic Michael McNeely. Today, Michael is reviewing 13 Lives, starring Viggo Mortensen and the very handsome Colin Farrell, salt and pepper, doing some work for Colin. You can find it on Amazon Prime and you can find Michael in Kingston, Ontario. Hey, good morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I've seen this movie, so I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on it. As I mentioned, it's available for streaming on Amazon Prime Video. Tell me a bit about the movie and the real-life story it's based on. Sure, then. Well, you know that it's based on the Tom Lu and um, Westgate and this is a cave system in Thailand. And ultimately what happened was, as probably everybody should know by now, in about um, June and July 2018, 13, 13 lives, so 12 boys and their assistant coach from the um, soccer team were just exploring in this cave one day and then they got trapped into it because of the monsoon that was happening that flooded them and trapped them in there. So these 13 lives were trapped in the cave system for approximately um, 15 to 16 days, if I'm not mistaken. And it's just an incredible story of survival and resilience when they were rescued and all of them ended up being rescued alive. However, there were two deaths, two deaths of two Thai divers. Do you think the movie does a good job of summarizing the real-life events? I think ultimately there's so much story to tell. There's a lot of content to cover. I think one Howard's film, 13 Lives, does do a commendable job of synthesizing the story 
But of course, because it's only two and a half hours, it cannot address everything. Um, and partly because it's two and a half hours long, sometimes it does feel a bit overwhelming. There's so much information to take in. I want to ask you a question, Dave. I want to ask you if you like to explore caves or dive. Michael, I don't go underwater in the ocean because that's where the sharks are. I don't go underwater in general because I can't breathe underwater. I would have a complete and utter panic attack. If I ever did scuba diving, I would have a double panic attack if you tried to make me dive in a cave. And I'll tell you after watching this movie, caves are out completely. No caves for Dave. No, I understand. I think you touched on one of the issues of this film is that these children have a double dose of death coming their way. They're stuck in a cave, of course. They're they could be crushed by rocks. They could drown. And then on top of that, they're probably, you know, starving and getting dehydrated. And on top of that, they also loosen their oxygen, so it's more than a double dose of death. It's just amazing when you think about the odds that these children defeated. Um, in addition to that, they just like you said, Dave, if if we were trying to rescue you from a cave. It would be thrashed around, probably. Oh yeah. Because it would be, it would be scared, so that the children, the children, because they are children, of course, the children needed to be sedated. So that was one of the one of the things that this cave rescue discovered was perhaps the importance of sedating children and doing it properly, so that you don't kill them. But I mean, just to think about all those odds that the children defied. This film was directed by Academy Award winner Ron Howard. Do you think he was a fitting director to tell this story? I I don't really know much more about Ron Howard's style. I think in this film, it was just a style that was the just telling the story from the beginning to the end. I don't think there was really any dramatic flourishes or any, or any special stylistic um, content. But what I will mention is that every now and again, there was a visual that appeared on the screen and it showed how, how far the characters were in the cave system. I thought that was interesting. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when you ask me some more questions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Before we get to that, Michael, on Disney Plus, there's a documentary available about this story called The Rescue. Why do you think this story is so popular? Or or do you think it's more so that people just love a survival story? Well, I do want to give a shout out to one of the co-directors of The Rescue, Jimmy Jean, who um, gave us solo on uh, Netflix and also has told us a story about his um, childhood growing up in Mind in the Gap, where he was a skateboard enthusiast, probably still is. So I think this is within his um, his uh, area of expertise. Caving is similar to mountain climbing. Um, it's just in the opposite direction, obviously. But um, I think what happened was you had Juan Howard started making his film. He started working on that film, presumably shortly after the Thai cave rescue needed to happen. And then... The rescue documentary beat Juan Howard to the punch, and it was commissioned by National Geographic. 
it's just a factual piece. It's easy. I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it was easier to make probably in the amount of time um, using footage from the using footage from the rescue, using news footage. And it's really interesting because they got the um, divers to reenact to reenact the scenarios that they were in. So of course they weren't using the actual caves. That would be insane. But they they found other ways to reenact that. So it's very it's very authentic. Um, I think I think the the main takeaway for this segment, Dave, is that you really need to watch both to get a comprehensive understanding of the situation. But that's not all because we probably have about three or four more adaptations coming in the pipeline, mm. uh, including a um, September 22nd uh, miniseries coming on Netflix. So I think what we're going to see is we're going to see that each streaming service will have its own adaptation to try and draw people to this story. You made reference to this before, Michael. How do you think the film, 13 Lives, or the documentary, The Escape, could have been made more accessible for a blind or low-vision audience? I think, first of all, I think they should have worked together. I don't think there should be this competition taking place. I think everybody should pool the resources that they have to tell this story. Um, number two, I think it would be great if for our audience members and myself and for you, if we could go on the website and we could learn about the cave system. And that the cave system was, this information was accessible. So for example, I think, you know, it would be nice to have a tactile display of the caves, which I know is probably not very feasible um, without a 3D printer, but it would be nice just to have that understanding of the cave system because when you watch 13 lives, they're going to be referencing the different rooms and the different caverns. But it, it won't mean anything to you unless you know where they're situated. So that's the same with the documentary. And both of them have the visuals that show you where the people are in the cave. But if you're blind or if you have low vision, you're not going to see that. So I'm just curious about what would happen if you didn't have some sort of, you know, some sort of... Um, orientation to your time in person. Yeah, I, I thought there also could have been a little bit more of a clearer orientation on what exactly this cave system was like beyond the visuals. I, I think that would have been really interesting to take a bit more of an in-depth dive about knowing, no pun intended, on precisely where we were as we made our way through beyond just the visual uh, offering that it gave us. But overall, I, I, I did think they did a fairly good job on that front. Michael, I'm rejecting your premise of saying these two movies should have worked together. If you had to choose, did you like the film or the documentary better? Oh my gosh, you're going to force me to choose. Oh... I think I have to put my faith into the documentary. Um, I still, I still do like the film. I still do like the film because the film is the one that actually took me to the documentary afterwards. But the documentary is very concise. It's very, um, very jam-packed with information. It answers questions that I had from watching the doc, uh, from watching the feature film. Um, it, it tells you more about the backstories of the divers, um, Richard Stanton, 
John Valentin and um, Richard Harris. It tells you it tells you more about why they were cave divers. It explains that cave divers um, are a unique breed of person. And I, th- I think at this point, mostly men. Although I did see a documentary about women cave divers that I will have to check out when I'm not so claustrophobic. Um, but that these cave divers, they didn't know that their expertise was going to be so needed, so desperately needed, and they they were used to being ostracized from the rest of the community, from the rest of the diving community or the rest of the athletic community. So it's really interesting that their, their expertise was needed at this time. So I did those are the things that I learned from the documentary more than I did from the film. Yeah, but the documentary doesn't have handsome silver fox Colin Farrell. So, you know, that's an important consideration here. Michael? Well, I have to say one more thing. Because um, last week I told you about um, told you about Jack O'Dardo and I said he was fighting Colin Farrell in that miniseries, The North Water. Now I have Colin Farrell. Yes. So that means you have two recommendations to watch, <laughs> to watch The North Water. Making sure the Irish actors are well represented on this show. Michael, out of 10, what do you rate 13 Lives? Well, I could be I could be cheap and I could tell you I rated 13 out of 10, but I don't think you pay me, you don't pay me to make those kind of jokes. Um so I think I think you know Founders also says seven out of ten with the documentary being about um eight point five out of ten. But I mean both of them do different things. Both of them can, can can meet different needs of yours. Very good. Michael, thank you for this. Have a great weekend. You too. And please, please just call me before you go into any cave systems. <laughs> yeah, I'll make sure everyone's alerted before I go in. But let's just uh, change my nickname to No Cave Dave. That was Michael McNeely reviewing 13 Lives starring Vigo Mortensen and Colin Farrell. Coming up after the break, we'll catch up with Grace, see what's cracking. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's bring in Grace Scofield to find out what's trending Grace, people on social media are talking about which streets in Canada are cool. I never thought about the coolest streets until you brought this topic to me, Dave. We, we collaborate. <laughs> we collaborate on the show. Time Out released its rankings of the coolest streets in the world, and they placed two Canadian cities in their top 14. So number one was a Canadian city. It's in Montreal. It's Rue Wellington. In Verdun? Yes. And that is the top Canadian city. Uh, it's top Canadian street. Top Canadian street. Sorry. Yeah. I know. I know what I'm saying. Cities, streets, <laughs> it all blurs together. It's Friday. It's Friday. Grace, exactly. can, I, can I jump in on this right off the top in yes, terms of the Montreal absolutely. street as a former Montrealer? Yes. I was stunned when I found out that Rue Wellington in Verdun was named the coolest street in the country uh, in the country and in the world. In the world, the coolest street. I mean, there's a lot of cool shops. There's a lot of cool stores. It's close to transit. It's fairly close to downtown. Verdun has gotten cooler and cooler and cooler over the years. But I think that's a little bit of a stretch. I think that's a little bit of a hipster pick. Has anybody been down Saint-Denis near Montréal? 
that is the coolest part of Montreal. Secondhand record stores and cafes and t-shirt shops. That's the coolest street in Montreal. But you know what? Way to go off the board. We appreciate that one. Right. And it was exactly for all the reasons that you hit, Dave. The pedestrianization of the street in the summertime, the fact that they made it very friendly to people, all of the bars, the cafes, and it was very close proximity to a beach. So those were its top points yeah. for being the those, coolest street. Those are good are, points. You know, good ones. Valid. Now, this is the one that I and many people on the crew disagreed with. Is that number 14 is from Toronto and it's Ossington. I've been to Ossington like maybe twice. They have a great gluten-free bakery. There's a big long McQuaid out there. There's some good points for Ossington. But why not Queen Street West? I don't know why they wouldn't pick Queen Street West. It's so much more fun. It's downtown core. It's closer and easier to go for transit. You don't have to ride line two, which is always a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody really wants to be on line two. So it's really easy to get to. And there's so many nice bars, close proximity to everything. You can get to malls. You can get to Union Station. Always very popular before and after a Blue Jays game. And just like it's a much nicer place to be than Ossington. There's so many cooler places to go. There's like fabric shops, there's restaurants, there's bars. It's just, it's so much more fun than Ossington, in my opinion. Yeah, it gets a little busy though. Queen West can get a little busy, gets, gets a little, gets a little it, uppity. It can, it can be a busy place. There is a Starbucks that I always avoid. Of course, avoid. You, of course of you know course, where it is of course, though, the but Starbucks you know where to avoid take. it, yeah. I will always have a Starbucks take, um, <laughs> but it's always very busy and I avoid that Starbucks every single time because the line is out the door. But it's it's everywhere. You can get everywhere yeah. from Queen Street West. I, I do think there's something interesting about identifying Ossington as a street because it does say where it intersects with Queen West is one of the cool spots. So I yes. wonder if they were thinking a little bit about how do we say something's cool in the West End of Toronto without going for the cliche. Probably very similar as to why they picked Rue Wellington in Montreal, right? Saying yes. we're yeah. not picking the cliche uh, Saint-Denis and Montréal. We're going to go kind of outside of like the realm of what's known. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you. Although I, I will, I did walk up Ossington with our guy Bruce, Bruce McClarion the other night and, I, and he and I both thought it was pretty cool. Although we thought College Avenue was much cooler during our walk. So, you know. College, always a great College Street? College Street. Sorry, yes. Avenue, College Street. College Street, awesome. Really nice restaurants and everything. I've got a friend who lives out there. Really great vibes yeah. uh, whenever you're on College Street. Ossington is fun. Like I said, there's a gluten-free bakery out there that's amazing. It's so good. Um, I drag my roommate out to it every once in a while to go grab a little spinach and nice. egg wrap situation. Nice. Mm. Really delicious. Don't remember the name. Um, but I do prefer for like a night out or if somebody's coming from out of town to the city, I prefer to take them to Queen West. Because there's so many more also familiar things. So especially if they're a tourist and they want a little bit more comfort, Queen West is definitely a yeah. place to go to first. I prefer to take them to Cabbage Town where you might get stabbed. I like to add That's a little a, bit of edge to the to yeah, where I go. You know, a little bit of fear. Yeah, a little bit of fear. To, <laughs> welcome to the big city. Fear a little bit. Yeah. Grace, I'm putting you on the spot here before I hit three, uh, three streets real quick. What's the coolest street in Sault Ste. Marie? Oh, the coolest street in Sault Ste. Marie. Um, I'm going to go for Great Northern Road, or which is really bad. Um, it's, as we call it for my dog, Food Row, <laughs> because it's where there's a bunch of fast food restaurants. So ooh, my ooh. dog's name is Coco. We take him on drives all the time. And the last spot on our drive before we start heading on our long drive home is 
Great Northern Road so that he can hit all of the smells <laughs> and delicious sights of the fast food restaurants on Great Northern Road. Oh, I love that. I'm already in love with Coco. <laughs> uh, okay, I want to hit three real quick here. One is recency bias. I was just on Argyle Street in Halifax, walking up and down, seeing some of the patios, going to a couple of the bars. Thought that was super cool. Can't leave out Preston Street in Ottawa. Since the revitalization of Preston a couple of years ago, very pedestrian-friendly, nice wide sidewalks, a lot of independent business. Little Italy's right there. You can't sleep on Little Italy. Love me Preston Street in Ottawa. And finally, we land on one of the cliched streets. We start on cliche. We end on cliche. Come on now. Broadway and Granville, 9th and Granville in Vancouver, British Columbia. That is a wicked intersection. Broadway's cool. Granville's cool. As you walk across the Granville Bridge in the evening, the skyscrapers reflect on the water as you see the snow-capped mountains. There is very little as beautiful as Granville. Grace, thank you for this. Of course. That's Grace Caulfield. There's no rum yet in within today, but there is an episode of Kelly and Company coming your way at 2 p.m. Eastern time. There's a new tool to help detect which in-app browsers try to track you. John Beeler has those details. Plus, the audiobook Hair Love by Matthew Cherry is bringing important conversations of representation to the forefront. Ryan Huey will have that in the chatty bookshelf. You can find Kelly and Company 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Coming up after the break, you can find Rachel Bro from the Center for Equitable Library Access. She has the featured titles about school and education as it is indeed back to school season. Back to school, back to school to prove to dad I'm not a fool. I will quote Billy Madison during the break. You stay right there because now with Dave Brown, we'll be right back. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. We have not managed to connect with Rachel Bro from the Center for Equitable Library Access. That's okay. Rachel's busy. They're working hard heading into the weekend. The one thing I'll mention to you here is I did say there were going to be a couple of titles here featured for back to school season. So I'm just going to read you the titles. Nothing in the world is exciting. It's just listing off things. But, you know, Sela did the work to put them together, and so did the gang from our TV department to put some visuals together. So let me just read off these four titles that I assure you I have not read. Hold On Your Kids, Hold On To Your Kids by Gordon Newfeld. Sounds depressing. Queen Bees and Wannabes by Rosalind Wiseman. That sounds kind of fun. Education by Tara Westover. That one's straightforward. And Wander by R.J. Palacio. So four titles that Rachel Bro and the gang from Sela think you need to read in back-to-school season. Hold On to Your Kids by Gordon Newfeld, Queen Bees and Wannabes by Rosalind Wiseman, Educated by Tara Westover, and Wonder by R.J. Palacio. And those are all available in Sela's collection. And considering we talk about Sela on this show all the time, I'm surprised you aren't already a subscriber to the Center for Equitable Library Access. But if you want to learn more about them, you can either punch in Sela into your Google machine, C-E-L-A, or look for them on Twitter at Sela Library, C-E-L-A, Library, L-I-B-R-A-R-A-Y. I already told Mike Ross to have a good weekend, but we found Mike Ross. We're bringing him back in here. Mike, the theme of this segment was back to school. I know in your household, back to school season can be a busy one. 
It is a busy one. My wife uh, was back in school this week, um, all because she is a a principal now. She's been a vice principal for many years. Wonderful news. Uh, I'm going to do a little little applause here. Thank you. She's... She's a little nervous, um, you know, because uh, being second in command versus being uh, being the head honcho is a little bit different, a lot more responsibility. Heavy is the and head the that wears the crown. It is absolutely, um, but it was it was funny. We actually, um, she's she's worked in all kinds of schools over her career, and in many instances, um, the the schools that she's been at have been sort of the older schools in the French public school board in Southern Ontario, which means many instances, they're very, very old buildings. And so now she's in a school that was actually built in the last decade. And so very modern, uh, one, one floor, it's all sort of ground floor access. Um, and what I love about what they've, what they've done with this school, um, between every classroom, there is a shared room. So if a, if a, a, an education assistant or a teacher needs to work with a student individually, they just slide out of the main classroom into this common room, but they're still a part of the classroom. I haven't seen that before. Like that, that is that, interesting. That sort That's of an interesting structure, yeah. Classroom. Yeah. So it's not like, all right, ship him out to the hallway and put him <laughs> in a desk in the hallway. Uh, I, I love the way they've done this. The other thing that's absolutely amazing is their library is in the middle of the schools, mm. like the whole building. But it is the one place in the building that's two stories. But there isn't a second floor to it. It's just that the ceiling is that much higher than everywhere else in the school, and the entire uh, the the entirety of the the upper part of the room is windows. So all this amazing natural light comes into that room and just gives this sense of just peace and 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 comfort uh, in 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 the library. I I walked in there and I was blown away. I was like, this is an elementary school. Are you kidding me? Mm. So. Pretty impressive, and uh, and so yeah, my wife's pretty excited, and um, this is always uh, an interesting time of year around our house because she, despite being in education, like oh my gosh, close to thirty years now, if not well, if not more, um, she still gets nervous every single year, and she she's like a kid getting ready for their first day of school. So yeah. it's, it's a fun time. It's a there's stress, but it's a fun time. Yeah, definitely. We're wishing all the teachers and principals who've started to come in this week and next week well. Of course, students in Quebec get back at it next week. They get at it before Labor Day, which is always sort of the exciting way that Quebec likes to do things. You start the summer a little bit earlier for Saint-Jean-Baptiste Day, then you have to get back before Labor Day. So that's a little switcheroo they give you in Quebec. So best of luck to all the students, teachers, principals, administrators, librarians, custodians, all the support staff, everybody getting back It's an exciting time of year, and hopefully this year's a little bit smoother sailing than the last couple years for everybody involved in the educational field. Mike, we've only got two minutes left here on the clock, but I don't know if you heard the conversation we had last segment about the coolest streets in Canada. I Again, I, I think there was maybe a little bit of a hipster vibe to that list. They were trying to go a little off the board. I know it's been a while probably since you've been on Preston Street in Ottawa, but have you been since the revitalization? I have not, but I've got great memories of some great spots along Preston Street. And I know I know what a hot spot it is now. 
for you know tremendous restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember it still being a really cool gathering place uh, when I lived in Ottawa. And of course, the Prescott uh, Hotel oh. was uh, certainly oh, one oh, with the oh, square oh. with the square pizza and the quarts of beer. And the meatball that subs. Was always, uh, Yes, indeed. That was a great place to uh, to hang out. And uh, yeah, so Preston Street, they, I'm not surprised that it's sort of evolved into an even hipper place. I think it's kind of neat that they've sort of picked up on that vibe that they you had around Dow's Lake for the yeah, longest time. Yeah. where There were some pretty good restaurants at the Dow's Lake Pavilion, but there just didn't, it didn't feel like there was any other reason to be out there other than Winterlude and maybe a trip to Mexicali Roses, yeah, right? Yeah, it didn't and connect. Then, it didn't connect, no. right? There was something about it where it was like, here's Dow's and here's Preston and there's nothing in between. Because you, you, you're right along Carling and what else is there, right? Like you've got the Civic Hospital, you've got a few neighborhoods, but a lot of ex, uh, agricultural land with the experimental farm being there uh, nearby. So it just didn't feel like there was a lot connecting people to that area and and still and, and a lot of commercial uh, uh, businesses there, right? So it, it was it was it sort of would roll up the sidewalks at like five o'clock or so. And, and that was the end of it. Still a lot of government buildings and such. So nice to see more connections to the community this way. Um, And, and I love the fact that it's, I love any corner of any city that's little Italy. I mean, sign me up anytime. And Preston Street does it well. People can say whatever they want to about Larry O'Brien and Jim Watson, the past two mayors of Ottawa, but the revitalization jobs they've done on Preston and Elgin and Bronson have been amazing. And that's that's two of them who've sort of put those prospects together. City Council deserves some credit as well. But it was all about wide sidewalks. It was all about the pedestrian experience. And it is amazing. Mike, we literally have 25 seconds on the clock here. What's the coolest street in Ajax? Uh, I won't call it a street. It's the waterfront path right next to Lake Ontario. Uh Uh-huh. Nailed it. Mike, Mm -hmm. thank you for uh, bailing us out. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Dave. That's Mike Ross. He is our news director. That's all the time we have for the show today. It's all the time we have for the show this week. We'll be back on Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. And because it is a Friday, we say thank you to the people who put this show to air all week. So let's roll them credits, gang. Host, Dave Brown. News director, Mike Ross. Social media reporter, Nisreen Abdel-Majid. Sports reporter, Jeff Ryman. Audio technical producer and entertainment reporter, Daniel Penamondo. Descriptions by AMI's media accessibility team. TV technical producer, Bruce McLarian. Live production switcher, Sebastian McKenzie. Senior show producer, Andrika Delanarol. Producers, Paul Daniel and Marianne Dion Jones. Audio technical supervisor, Paula Deneen. Operations specialist, Kyle Harper. Manager of AMI Audio, Andy Frank. Director of TV Production, Kara Nye. Vice President, Programming and Production, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback at 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2022, Accessible Media, Inc. An AMI original production. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.